Let's get into it. We have been, uh, this is our fourth and final week on our series of biblical justice uh, and um, doing what we should be doing as Christians. Rather than getting swayed back and forth by the changing tides and ideas of the cultures around us, which is so easy for us to do. I mean, it's just what happens to us. The church exists in a broader culture, and, there's, and, and because of that, uh, which means that there's syncretism that happens, right? The, the church is like influenced by the ideas of the world, and, and that happens to us. And so right now, the idea of justice is such a hot topic. You can't leave the house without hearing this version of it, that version of it. So we, you know, God has given us the Bible uh, as a source of wisdom for us as well, so we can know what his mind is in all these things. And so we've been, we've been for the last four weeks really looking at what does the Bible say about justice and the church's role in that so that we can then go out and do what God has called us to do, be witnesses in the world and to bring uh, peace and be peacemakers and to bring truth and light and clarity uh, and the justice and the righteousness that God calls us to bring as a church. We want to get better at doing that. We need to get better at doing that. So for four weeks, we've been looking at all uh, various things the Bible says about this. We've done some pretty heavy introspection. We've asked ourselves some pretty hard questions. Uh, and there's going to be some of that in this. But mainly, I wanted to end this four-week series with this vision of hope. Uh, something that we could get excited about, really what God says, these promises that are embedded in the Bible and especially in our text today, it's really clear in Isaiah 48, there's these stunning promises that God makes to us that we can take advantage of, that we can access, that could be true of us or more true of us as people and as a church. And so I wanted to end on um, basically something that would be hopeful and encouraging. And so let's, uh, if you're able, would you please stand as we listen intently together to Isaiah 58. This is God's inerrant word. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. And yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you only fast to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours, this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it, for, is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover him 
not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, and then your, then your light, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for um, that beautiful image, that beautiful passage of, of all the blessings and, uh, that you have for us, your nearness to us, whether we see it or not, on wisdom for us, Lord, wisdom for us to know how, how does the universe work? How have you created it to work so that we can work uh, and we can do and be in, in, in accordance and in line with how you've made us and how you've made the universe. And Lord, in the midst of this, you present a beautiful picture of Jesus going out into the nations. And so we pray especially that you would help us to see that and what our ultimate goals are here. And we might not forget that and that you might empower us by your spirit, Lord. So pray that we would have minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. And we are counting on you, Lord, to beautify us through the power of your word, your afflicted ones, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I think I told you all this story before, but as a young man, I had one time met an older man who told me that what he really wanted in life was to have a peaceful spirit and a joyful heart and a purpose in life. And I thought to myself when I heard that, I was like, all right, you know, I can maybe get down with the purpose in life, especially if it's about me. But the rest of that, man, that just sounds boring. What about excitement? What about adventure? What about, uh, gosh, what about enjoyment of life? What about seeking after pleasure? What about glory? None of that seemed to be a part of anything that that guy had just said. And I thought, man, I hope my life would never end up to be that sad and empty and miserable. Well, fast forward 20 years, and I am sitting in the smoldering rubble heap of the ground zero that my life has become, desperately trying to put the pieces back together, what, what few pieces remain. Uh, and I had this stunning realization and the realization was that everything I had done, all the sin I had chased, all the adventures that I had gone after, all the pleasure that I had sought, uh, some of it was good, some of it was very bad, and all of it, all of it was really a misguided attempt 
to achieve a peaceful spirit and a joyful heart and to have a great purpose in life. And that's kind of what this passage is talking about. For us as people, as Christians, for us as, as a church, for the church, you know, when we get really honest, that's kind of, that's what we want, right? Maybe the, the most popular you know, I think people say is, I just want to be happy. People want to have, you know, a peaceful spirit. They want to have joy. They want to have a purpose in life. But oftentimes, um, a lot of times, it, it, becomes, it can be really easy for us to get sidetracked in how we achieve those things. Uh, and a lot of times, we can get locked into patterns of trying to achieve that in ways that are antithetical to what God says about how we go about that and how that works. Uh, often our ideas and our best laid plans end up working against that rather than for it. And so here's the big idea of this passage. Big idea is this, that God's promises are better than our plans because they invite us to participate in the divine life. God's promises are better than our plans because they invite us to participate in the divine life. So let's look at that one part at a time. Let's look at, look at God's promises first. I want, to start with these, I want to start with these promises that we just read. If you read in the chapter, maybe you got kind of hung up on, on uh, some of the chastising that God is like throwing down in the first chapters, you know. But it, once he gets rolling... He really gets into some stunning and remarkable promises, right? And if you were to ask any of us, like, you know, if we were to say, and most of us would, I just want to be happy, I just want to be content, I want to be fulfilled, and then we asked ourselves, well, how, how would you get there? How would, you, how would that work out? Um, you know, we may have various different answers, but for the most part, a lot of our answers involve stuff that's outside of us. If I were to get this or achieve that or get to this spot, then, then I'd be happy. Which, you know, in itself is kind of a bummer because it's always, you're always ha it's always, I'll be happy if, but it, what means that it's never cool now. What if it was something completely different, right? Let's do a quick thought experiment and, and let's ask ourselves, what if, what if our lives was like this? What if our lives was like this as I described? What if, first of all, you had kind of an unshakable and deep sense of personal security and peace that was kind of unfazed by anything going on around you? It's even unfazed by, even unfazed by your Facebook feed. I mean, that kind of deep, deep peace and security or the news cycle or any bad news that you might essentially get. And in this passage, God uses this Exodus language in verse 8 to say, your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord, your rear guard. That's a promise God is making to literally surround us with his presence and protection in the same way that he surrounded the Israelites on the beach of the Red Sea when the Egyptians were crushing down on them. God sent his angel behind the Israelites and, and put up smoke and fire and, and surrounded the Israelites. And even though right outside that barrier was chaos and danger, inside that barrier was perfect protection and peace. And what if we had that? What if your life was about 
was like that. What if we had, in our lives, we, had, we were able to demonstrate like kind of a startling degree of spiritual power and that God like would answer prayers in a way that even freaked you out a little bit. You were like, wow, uh, that was crazy. And you could kind of point to those. If anybody ever asked you like, well, how has God ever answered any of your prayers? You could say, well, yeah, I, you know, I prayed for my sister and this happened. I prayed for my dad and that happened. And uh, You could point them out. Verse 9, promise in verse 9 says, You shall call, the Lord will answer. You shall cry out, and he will say, Here I am. There's a sense, God is saying, that there will be a, like, a, a constant sense of God's presence with us. And when we call out to him, he will answer us. What if he had like a, almost like a GPS-like sense of spiritual guidance in all the hard decisions of daily life? We just felt like the Spirit was like, you know, not telling you specifics, who should you marry, where's your job, this and that, but you had like a general guidance through life that you were able to move through life in wisdom. Verse 11, the promise is the Lord will guide you continually. Continually. What if you had, what if we had kind of a sustained spiritual joy that even in the midst of this scorched and fallen world uh, we had a deep sense of joy that allowed us to manage the sorrow of this life in ways that didn't overwhelm us not that you're not going to have sorrow not that we're going to be rejoicing and jumping up and down all the time but that the joy of what we have or joy of the Lord would be so deep that all of our sorrow would become manageable. And what if you were overflowing with the Holy Spirit in such a way that you had a deep sense of well-being and a spiritual death that everybody you met kind of noticed and was affected by? Verse 11 says, you shall be like a watered garden, internal well-being, and not just that, but you will be like a spring of water. Water's flowing out of you. And that those waters, it says, whose waters do not fail. And imagine a world where the church was made up with people like that. And it was the most exciting part of your life because the supernatural wasn't something you just listened to or heard about on late night talk radio. But it was like a natural and everyday part of your life. And I don't mean parlor tricks, I don't mean nonsense, but I mean like seeing on a regular basis people coming out of death and into life. The guy, the, the guy or the girl, you were like, that guy's never, never going to become a Christian. All of a sudden, sitting in the front row with the hands up, praying, watching people come out of death and into life and seeing the Spirit's work in and through that, seeing communities change and seeing uh, us as a church having an effect on the surrounding community in such a way that we can really see how we are benefiting and being a blessing to them. A church that's not free from persecution, but just totally unfazed by it. Could care less. It just doesn't matter. That's a pretty startling vision, you know. Uh, 
But all of those promises are embedded in this text. These are things that God says can happen or will happen. God whose promises cannot be false. A God who cannot lie to us, right? And I was just in a conversation with, with a friend the other day, and, and this is something we say as Christians all the time. We say Malachi is the only place in the Old Testament where God says to try him, to test him, whether or not, you know, if we are faithful with our, with our tithing and finances, if God will not take care of us, right? And literally that's true. It says test me, but isn't this the same thing here? If you look at this, the passage, it's set up in if-then statements, right? We've got to be careful with those if-then statements. You never want to attach those to salvation issues. We never want to say, if we do this, then God will love us. If we do this, then we'll be saved. You know, we don't ever want to say that, but God does and often does lay these things out. If, if you live your life in, in the way that I created you to live it, and if you live your life in the way that you as a creature were built to live in the universe as I created it, then these things will happen. It's if and then. It's God's promises to us in this passage saying, really, trust me. If you do this, this will happen. And so, look, if God, if it's God who cannot lie, right, laying out the thens, this will happen. If, we're not a, if that's not a good picture of our life, the problem is not with the thens, right? The problem is with the ifs. We're not, like, tapping into that in the way God has asked us to, or there are issues. So let's look at this. Let's do this. Let's look, um, let's look at what the Israelites thought the ifs were. What is it, if you do these things, will create happiness, contentment, security, a peaceful spirit, a joyful heart, a purpose in your life? What are the ifs that will create those things? What did the Israelites believe the ifs were, and what did they do? And then let's compare notes, okay? All right, you ready for this? Okay, let's do it. Okay, part two, our plans. God's promises are better than our plans, and our plans meaning what we do to pursue peace and joy and purpose and power and security and contentment in life. <laughs> if you want to listen, if you guys want some real entertainment, and I just found out about it this week, <laughs> you can get, look at my, my last Facebook post that I did last night. You know, when I was supposed to be writing my sermon. Um, <laughs> there is no lie on Holy Week in Jerusalem. There's a parade that moves uh, through the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which uh, some, you know, there's the six big Catholic denominations, Orthodox denominations believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the spot where Jesus was crucified and also where the tomb was that he was laid to rest and where he was resurrected from the dead. So it's a super holy place. Uh, and every, every holy week, there's this parade and all these priests, they get gussied up in their like best priest clothes, you know, and they get all pretty on the outside. 
and they get, you know, they're ready, they're getting ready to like nail their rituals down, and yet there's so much animosity between the factions that every year almost it ends up in a straight up bar fight. I'm not even kidding. It's like a hockey game. I'm watching this video. There's this one priest, one Armenian priest. He like runs up behind the Greek Orthodox priest and just clotheslines him, open fist, right? It's better than world. It's better than wrestling. It's better than UFC. It's better than a hockey game. It is, it is high entertainment, right? Look at these videos. Check it out. And they do it for every year. They've done it since 1147, 1147, it's so bad. No Christian denomination has the keys to the church. You know who's got the keys? The Muslims got the keys. (laughs) They had to give the keys to the Muslims because the Christians are getting in bar fights, right? So the two Muslim families for literally a thousand years have had the keys. Every day they open the church up, they let everybody in. They like the neutral peacekeeping parties. Right? It's, it's so bad that there's been a ladder sitting on a ledge since the early 1800s. <laughs> Nobody can touch it. <laughs> they can't move the ladder because they'll start a war. <laughs> the building is ready to fall down. They can't do any repairs. Right? So here these guys are vying, you know, and all, all looking super pretty on the outside. And they're all v- literally inside what kind of seeps out around the perfection of ritual is the reality of the state of their hearts, what they really trust in, the pride of place, uh, and, this, and just all of the anger and fear and quarreling and fighting and hitting with a wicked fist that that kind of stuff creates in a life where that is what's most important. It reminds me of Buca de Beppo. <laughs> you ever been to Buca de Beppo? <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. The decor, it's all like Roman Catholic icons and then interspersed are these like softcore voyeuristic pictures of Bridget Bordeaux and other little, little scenes of violence just kind of seeping out around the works-based righteousness rituals. It's like the same thing. It's crazy. Go and look at it. Look at it. It's the same thing. So let's look, at what, let's look at what these guys are doing. It's the same kind of thing. They were really worried on focusing on getting these rituals just right. The Israelites, the fasting, the Sabbath, the religious ordinances, the sacrifices. But you could see, you can see in the text how like kind of up and through uh, the perfection of ritual, you see the violence seeping up to the surface. So first, the rituals, they were all about that. Verse 2, listen to this, Reformed Church. They were all about knowing about God. They were biblical experts, but they didn't like to do any of the stuff that it said, especially that justice and righteousness part. Uh, anything, you know, that's, anything that like stunk of the social gospel or, God forbid, social justice uh, and they had very good, as we talked about a few weeks ago, they had very compelling religious and politically persuasive arguments as to why that was perfectly okay. They're all about getting to know stuff, not very good at doing stuff. Um, 
And when they did do stuff, second thing, it was to put on a big religious show that didn't really require any sacrifice or obedience. Here are these, you know, as we, as we saw a couple weeks ago, these like upper middle class wealthy Israelites, and they, their ritual was to fast for a day. And we know from Jesus tells us they made a big show of it, right? It didn't really cost anything. You know, have you ever fasted and, and you're like, in the middle of the day, you're wondering to yourself, am I doing this because, I, is this a spiritual exercise or am I trying to lose weight today? I, I don't know. Sometimes I just don't know, you know? I'm like, I think so, but what's my big goal here, you know? And so it was, they would fast for a day, but it really wasn't about humbling themselves before God, and it really didn't cost anything. It didn't, you know, it's a day. That's really comes out in the test in the text. It says for a day, for a day. And they would fast for a day, make a big show of it. Didn't really require any real sacrifice or obedience. And then after the day, back to business as usual. You know. And in this passage, we our passage and of the law passage that Norm read, what does God say about that? God says, I despise your sacrifices, your Sabbaths, your convocations, your assemblies, your regulative principle of worship, your ministry of ordinance sacrament, your sacraments and prayers. God despises those things if they're done only for the sake of doing them perfectly. And there is not a heart behind them of love and gratitude for God. God hates traditionalism, but he loves tradition. We need to make that. Not saying that those things are bad, but if we slip into, that's what we're really all about. Knowing about good theology, uh, figuring out how to do, you know, beautiful worship services, really about the outward appearance of religion, but we miss, you know, what Jesus says elsewhere. We meticulously focus on the details of things like tithing and completely miss the more important issues of mercy and justice uh, on the things that love for God and gratitude for salvation are supposed to produce in us. We look beautiful on the outside, but inside we're full of dead man's bones. And in, in, in this passage, it says our hands are full of blood. Why? Because in the midst of all of their little rituals, the violence of their everyday life started to seep out through the cracks. For most of the week, they would fast on a certain day, but for the rest of the week, and even on that day, it says they would oppress their workers. hard to know what that meant exactly, but they were, you know, we can, we can certainly say they were unfair to their workers. Maybe they were sucking out every bit of profit for themselves at the expense of paying their workers as little as possible. Maybe they were abusing them physically. Maybe they were, uh, you know, not giving them benefits they needed. Maybe they, whatever it was, they were so selfish about their business being about them, they cared nothing about their employees. That's the picture. They were focused on brutal selfishness. And then it started to seep up into their everyday life, right? They looked good in their little rituals, but it says, you know, they, they got together, they fasted to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist, meaning that 
they're really all about you, that necessarily creates anxiety and fear, and the fear creates anger, and the anger then manifests itself in sin towards other people and taking advantage of other people for your own good. And they were all, all about that. Lives characterized by brutal, selfish vying for position while at the same time getting, being really good at knowing what the Bible said and perfecting their theology, doing the rituals and making their worship services really nice. Uh, but in the rut, they didn't even notice or couldn't be bothered to listen to the cries of the oppressed, the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow that were all around them. That's what Isaiah's, the Lord is saying to them through Isaiah. And the Lord is saying, that's not cool. Man, that's not cool. It reminded me of, this is what it reminded me. I started thinking of all the passages in Scripture that warn against uh, what I'm going to call an assent-only faith, meaning believing the facts of Christianity. Uh, without really trusting in them to the point uh, where that knowledge of God changes your heart in such a way that you become more and more like Jesus, more generous, right? All, look at all the passages that talk about that. James, which is the next book we're going to do, by the way, uh, faith without works is dead. Even the, dele- even the demons believe and tremble, meaning demons have perfect theology, and they tremble. Um, there's a story of Jesus, the first time he preaches in a synagogue in Mark, there's a guy in the synagogue who's possessed by a demon. When Jesus starts preaching, he starts shouting at him. But what we don't think about is that that guy's been sitting in synagogue for probably decades, going through the motions. It's like a warning. Uh, and what does Jesus say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Depart from me, because you did not feed and clothe and visit. There's all these warnings about having a faith that's built purely or almost all on knowledge, but that doesn't, that knowledge ever produces any love, Paul. If I have all these things but not love, I am nothing. All of these warnings against that, and yet, we go to our Presbyterian meeting, and what do we do? 95% of our Presbyterian meetings are just checking everybody to make sure they got their systematic theology right. It's pretty much all we do. It's all we do. We're a licensing board. We live in a border community. We do nothing about immigration or caring for immigrants. We have a Somali Muslim population in San Diego. I don't think we've ever talked about how we could bring the gospel to them. In El Cajon, we have a huge Syrian refugee population. We never talk about that. We never do any of these things that would then manifest the character and love of God in the world in such a way that we could bring the gospel 
and preach the gospel in ways that were powerful. I got a friend, one of Gavin's friends, he introduced me to a pastor in San Francisco. In his presbytery, he used to go up every, every time they had a, somebody, a candidate for ordination, and everybody else was, you know, asking their, in, you know, super interesting theological questions about, you know, can you explain to us the catechetical operation of the law and Paul, or, you know, and, uh, and he would go up and he'd say, knock on the mic, you know. Can you tell me about the last time you led someone to Jesus and how, what happened and how it went? <laughs> Deer in headlines, why? They hated him, why? Because none of these pastors had ever led somebody to Jesus that they could remember. Is it just me or is that crazy? They hated him. He ended up getting banned and kicked out. That's kind of like the Pharisee, I think, kind of like the Israelites in this picture, you know. And the worst part of it is they didn't even know that's what happened or that's what was happening because that's what everybody did. It was so normal. It was so culturally acceptable. Uh, it was just, that was just what you did. That it was really hard for people to think outside the box and be like, wait a minute, what about these, what about these passages about mishpat, justice, and tzedakah, righteousness, and... What about these passages about preaching the gospel and uh, being an evangelistic force in the culture? And um, in 2018, I was reading a book about missionaries in Somalia. A guy wrote a, um, a book called The Insanity of God. He followed it up. He was a missionary in Uganda where there was a revival, right? Hundreds of people coming to Jesus all the time. He moved his mission field to Somalia, where the, opera, the, 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 the MO of the warlords in Somalia was, we don't kill the missionaries, we wait until they make converts and we kill the converts. And that way we do, we, you know, kill, you know, we, we discourage the missionaries from even coming. Because you spend months with someone, you know, you rejoice in them receiving Jesus, and then the next day, you know, they're machine gunned to death with their family in the front yard. And I'm reading this book, and it's talking about how in that environment, they made four adult converts and baptized them. Four in Somalia. And, of course, they celebrated the Lord's Supper together as a church family, and the next day they were all murdered. And I thought to myself, wow, how many people did we baptize this year? Four. We baptize four people. Now, I know it's rough in San Diego. <laughs> I know it's pagan. I know it's leftist. I get, I get, but it ain't Somalia. Why? 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 Why have we no evangelistic force in the, com in, in the community, in the culture? I got to work my way through college painting cars. I got this great job. It was awesome. I like brand new sober, and I thought to myself, <laughs> I want to paint show cars because I'm me, and you should let me do that, right? <laughs> but God, in his like insane mercy and goodness to me, actually got me a job working under a master painter as an apprentice at an Italian supercar 
custom shop. We made from, from, from uh, we completely restored, concourse restored, refinishing Lamborghini Mura cars. I don't know if you ever know what that is. It's a, it, was, it was legit. The first Italian supercar ever made. 68 to 72, aluminum body, mid-engine V12, uh, aircraft framing. Uh, you, uh, it was insane. These cars were insane. And we would make them perfect. We would spend all the time in the world. $80,000 was the starting fee for a paint job not including the mechanical restoration. We would get the car, we would completely dissemble it and refinish every nut, bolt, and washer and part to its better than its original factory standards. And when we were done, the cars were like mirrors. You could, I mean, you could see a perfect reflection of yourself. They were absolutely cosmetically and aesthetically perfect on the outside. And then the mechanics would get in there and rebuild these engines these super high horsepower engines, these cars would be 160, 180 miles an hour, just blow away other cars on the road uh, with the mechanical precision and, and power of their motors that they built up in these cars, right? And on one glorious day when the cars were all done, one of the painters and the mechanics, we would get to take one of those cars and we would go for a victory lap through the back streets of Mira Mesa. You would not want to be out on the road when we did that. I mean, literally, you know, doing 160, 170 miles an hour down uh, uh, whatever that Camino Ruiz in the back country, down to Sorrento Valley and back up. It was super fun for me, right? Get to drive and live and, and ride in one of those cars. And then you know what they did with those cars? We'd, we'd wipe them down and they'd load them on a trailer and the trailer would take the car to the car show and they'd pull the car out on the lawn and every once in a while they might rev that motor and people would stand around and gawk at how beautiful it was. But that was it. At the end of the car show, they'd go back on the trailer and they'd go into storage. They'd go back on the trailer, they'd go to the car show, they'd rev the engine a little bit. And so there was this car, a million and a half dollars of car of uh, utter horsepower, mechanical perfection, aesthetic beauty, sitting on the lawn. It never did anything, was ever able to do anything that it was inherently capable of doing, that God had given it the power to do. And we had a word for those cars. You know what we called them? We called them trailer queens. <laughs> That's the name of those cars. Because that's all they did. They just, as beautiful as they were, as powerful as they were, as capable as they were, they never got off the trailer. They were trailer queens. And I'm afraid that in the American church, that's happened to us in some ways, maybe in a lot of ways. I think we have a lot of churches that have become trailer queens. We have high horsepower, precision, theological knowledge of God. We're really good at that. We are able to put together aesthetically beautiful worship. Uh, we know the gospel inside and out. 
And yet as churches, we never really ever get off the trailer. We never get out there and use all that horsepower to bring the gospel to the nations in any significant way. We never get off the trailer to go out and, and do justice and righteousness in the world in the way the Bible talks about it. beautiful, it's precision, and it sits on the lawn. But what's the answer? How do we fire that motor up? How do we get behind the wheel and turn that key and listen to that V12 sing? And man, they sing. Well, listen, the answer's all over the place. It's super clear in this passage, but I think like maybe, uh, you know, the Israelites sometimes were afraid of it because it, it sounds super costly and difficult. And that is, the answer is p- to participate in the divine life. To participate in the divine life. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? Uh, we, have a, we have a friend that was... Um, just telling me recently that, you know, up until pretty recently, she believed that which, and this is a very popular belief among people, uh, she believed that we were all an extension of God, that we were all part of God in one way or another. Um, and that was her core belief about, about supernatural things. And, and it makes total sense, right? I mean, it, it makes sense to think that way. A lot of people think that way. Uh, Oprah is the high priestess of that religious system. She's very influential in the world. It's an Eastern you know, religious thought pretty much, so it's very old, and it really makes total sense right up until the minute it doesn't, and you know the minute it doesn't is the minute when you realize you actually need power outside of yourself to solve the problem, that you, if you are an extension of God, it's not doing you any good (laughs) because you are overwhelmed with problems that you cannot handle, and this friend of ours found herself in that spot not too long ago, and she was like, as soon as this happened, all of a sudden, I didn't believe that anymore, and I started like thinking, there, I hope there's a God who's outside of me and who's powerful. Um, and, that's, and that's true. That is true about God. However, that doesn't mean that God is just, you know, there's no connection with God whatsoever. I have another friend who used to think of God as like, you know, this being like way on the other side of the universe, and that he had like a little radio and he would like maybe transmit the radio and the radio wave would get weaker and weaker as it made it its way towards God across the universe. And that's not true either. The truth is actually much better than both of those options. And the truth is that God is, yes, he's, God is all-powerful. God is outside of us. He is the creator. We are his creations. However, he has made us to participate in the divine life. He's made us to be vessels of his spirit. He's made us to be literally channels of the power of the Holy Spirit moving through us into the world. Peter calls this, uh, you know, participating in the divine nature. Um, The Bible talks about us being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, which produces what Peter again calls inexpressible joy. It's a joy that's, that's, that's so deep and so rich, you can't even... Well, you put words to it. You can't really explain it. You gotta, gotta you know, just say, I, I, it's a piece that 
surpasses understanding. Um, so how do we get there? We get there, God gives the if statements, you know, in this passage as well. He gives, we started out with the then statements. This is how the universe works. If you operate in that capacity along with these, the way I've created you to be and the universe to be, it will produce these results. Spiritual power, uh, uh, connect in connection with God, security, um, all those things. Now here, and so here are the ifs that God has built into the fabric of creation that produce the thens in this passage. First, he says it's not just about one day of sacrifice, but it's really about becoming, uh, getting to a habit of a life of sacrifice that looses the bonds of wickedness un- to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke to get out of those cycles of self-centeredness and instead be agents for justice and righteousness in the world. That's one of the ifs that produces the then. Uh, and not just to speak against, but to, when we see machines of oppression to do what we can in our power to actively dismantle them. Second, he says, in this passage, to substantially care for the poor, the homeless poor, really. When the Bible says, in the Hebrew word, it says, consider the poor, we take consider to mean think about them. <laughs> That's what it means in English. But in Hebrew, it doesn't mean that. It means, it means really reestablish them in life and help, uh, help build them up to the point where they're able to be self-sustaining. It's a very detailed, uh, good Samaritan-type endeavor. Uh, and a cultural clue, this would include people displaced by war in the original context. So we are to reestablish them into life, food, clothing, shelter. Uh, and third it says, third thing it says is don't point the finger or speak wickedness, which is kind of like a Hebraic idiom that meant <laughs> um, pointing the finger was to be like, to be uh, accusing in an atmosphere of pressure to induce fear, uh, especially to gain favor from a group or a political boss. It's right out, of the, right out of the dictionary, man. It means to not create, uh, not to create an atmosphere of pressure for the purpose of inducing fear to, to push forward your political agenda. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Uh, and, and speaking wickedness is the part of that that's about accusation and discrimination, gossip, slander, character, assassination, um, stuff like that. And it says instead to pour yourself out for the hungry and for the desires of the afflicted. Really, it's pour your soul out. It really means to, you know, it's what Jesus talks about, about dying to self and um, all those passages about shifting our focus from selfishness to service um, and then pouring ourselves out for the benefit of our community and people around us and our families. 
And of course, I mean, and why, do, why, why, does it, why does that work? It's because, and why do we do, why should we do that? It's, it's what God does. God has called himself the God of the oppressed, of the immigrant, of the fatherless, of the widow. He specially identifies with those, care, care, with those categories and has a deep sense of care and compassion for them in the world. And he calls us to image him. We image the God that we see and know, and that's what he does. So we are called to do that. Um, but really, this is what Jesus did for us, right? I mean, that's a big, big, big reason. All of those things Jesus did for us. Jesus loosed our, the bonds of wickedness from us. He released us from the yoke of the straps of death. He liberated us from the tyranny of sin. He rescued us uh, from, from Satan and from the power of death at great cost to himself, right? He, he did that for us so that we are people who have been liberated in all of those ways. Uh, but here's the thing, and this is maybe the most astonishing part of this whole passage, and we'll, we'll come to end with this. What is the ultimate role of all this? Why should we model God like that in the world? Why should we work hard on not being selfish and, and being people who are of service and literally pouring ourselves out for the benefit of others? Um, and it all centers around what it means in this passage when it talks about your light. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, this is one of the promises that God makes. He says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing spring up speedily and righteousness shall go before you. And in verse 10, it says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as noonday. Honestly, when I first read this, I was thinking of it in terms of Proverbs where our light was like our continence or our emotional state of well-being where God promises to like lift us up out of despair. Um, but that's not what this is talking about. This, ha this is a specific reference to another light that Isaiah is talking about in this context. It's a very specific light. Look at Isaiah 42.6. This is talking about Jesus. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, Jesus. This is Isaiah, 750 years prior, talking about Jesus and his role as Messiah, uh, in case you're wondering. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And in 49, now says the Lord, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is Jesus now speaking through Isaiah 750 years before the fact. He says, God says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Elsewhere, all over in Isaiah, he's talking about the light to the Gentiles. The people who dwelled in darkness will see a great light. This is specific. The light, the light that we can count on breaking forth like the dawn if we do these things. 
the light that we should count on is rising up in the darkness if we act like this. The light is Jesus, and the light is the gospel. There's this direct connection that God is making in this. He's saying, if, if you live in such a way that uh, your knowledge of me and all, all of your study and everything creates a, gr- a deep sense of gratitude in your heart so that you do these things as an, as, a, as an act of worship and love for me, they are also acts of evangelism. There's a direct connection between how you lead with love and service, how you lead with justice, how you lead with righteousness into the world, and that will create these things that will, that will cause our light to rise in the darkness, the gospel to rise up out of the darkness. It will call for the gospel to break forth like the dawn. I want to see that. Do you want to see that? I mean, man, when people are coming to faith, it is... um, It is the lifeblood of any church when you see people coming to Jesus and you see the impossibility of it and it's just so obvious that it's the work of the Holy Spirit because that could never happen, you know? When you see that happening, it's so exciting. It it gives us life. It creates uh, excitement and it makes church so much more fun. Not that this is supposed to be all fun, right? I get it. We're here to worship God. We're here to give our thanks. We're here to grow. We're here to go through painful experiences. We're here to be sanctified, right? Amen. Can I get an amen? I get it. But those things are so hard to do if there's no life pouring into your church. It starts to stagnate. And before you know it, even with the best intentions, you're kind of going through the motions. Uh, And then you start doing it so long and everybody else is doing it like that. You think it's normal. And you get used to sitting on the trailer and you forget that you've got a finely tuned V12 sitting right under the hood. And that's why this stuff is so important to me. That's why I want it to be important for us. Do I want to see justice done in the world? Do I think we have a responsibility to care for and love our neighbors? Absolutely. But the church isn't called to just slap Band-Aids on the problem. That's all secular organizations can do slap band-aids on the problem, hope for the best. The church has a better solution. Do I want to see uh, the light of the church, the, uh, our light rise like the dawn in the church in, 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 in spiritual power and evangelism and in doing good in the world and in growing in the excitement of our community? Absolutely, I want to see that. But more than anything, I want to see the gospel go out to the nations. God promises. If we think these things through, make them a priority, he will make uh, us into a light and then his salvation will reach to the end of the earth. The gospel will go out in power from us uh, where we will be baptizing more adults than kids. We will be seeing new life we'd be seeing 
real supernatural stuff happening in our midst, real supernatural things. If only we would trust God enough to do what it says. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being with us, and um, we thank you for challenging us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give us all a sense of humility, especially me. You know, not everything I've said over the course of this series is probably totally accurate, and um, we're all fallen sinners working our way through this stuff, but at least, Lord, we're working our way through it. And I pray you would help us to do that as a community, Lord, so that we would be balanced, that we would be a church who is growing spiritually, and that spiritual growth would naturally result in us as a church together and us as Christians doing justice, seeking righteousness, loving mercy, walking humbly with you, and that we count on you, Lord. We call upon you to remember these promises that you've made to us that your spiritual life would flow in and through us and give us peaceful spirits and hearts that are full of uh, rejoicing with inexpressible joy so that our sorrows are manageable, so that we have deep security in the world um, and we have a great purpose in life outside of our own interests. Help us to be that over the next year, two years. Help us to become that. In Jesus' name, amen.